Week number two. Good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you this morning. Welcome to week number two of the brand new year. We are also in a second week of our series called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. I imagine you're like me, have read through some of the scripture and come across a quote from Jesus and think, oh my goodness, I wish he had never said that. You know, uh, just last week we kicked it off with the understanding that, <laughs> that Jesus taught clearly taught that your forgiveness from God, mine too, but your forgiveness from God is dependent on your willingness to forgive those who sin against you or those who offend you or those who do you wrong. You know, I wish Jesus never said that. You know, I, sometimes I don't want to forgive, right? You know, sometimes it doesn't, uh, I, I just don't feel like doing that. But my forgiveness from God is dependent upon my willingness to forgive those who sin against me. I just wish you'd never said it. Maybe you were reading through the Gospel of Luke and you get to chapter 12 and then you come across verse 51 and you see this quote from Jesus that's absolutely stunning. It says, do, do you think that I have come to give peace to the earth? No, rather strife and division. Well, you know, you think about that, you know, uh, uh, you say, gosh, I, I, what do we do with that? You know, I, and I bet you've never heard a pastor preach on that before, ever. I'm going to be preaching on it here in the next couple of weeks, but you've probably never heard a pastor preach on that before. And that's generally because they're a whole lot smarter than I am. That's the reason why you've never heard it. They leave those hot potatoes alone. Smart pastors don't do that kind of stuff. Well, unfortunately, you've got a dimwit as a pastor, and I'm going to be dealing with that particular one here in the next couple of weeks. So today, I've come across another statement that I wish Jesus had never said, and it says this. Here is the quote, Matthew 5, Jesus' most famous sermon, which is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to stumble, do what? Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, do what? Cut it off. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Goodness. Now, isn't that a nice, pleasant little scripture to start off our day? Yeah, absolutely. Good grief. What in the world do you do with that? You know, I know that this is God's word for us. I know it. I know it. I just wish he had not said it quite like that. So how do you get into that? I was thinking about it this week, about whether or not I was just going to or if it'd be better to approach it a different way. So I've actually thought about approaching it a different way. I think what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to sneak around the side of that scripture and approach it from the back and attack it that way. We're not going to deal with it head on. We're going to go around the scripture and then hit it from the back. And that's the way we're going to figure out what Jesus has to say. So let's sneak up on it from behind. And I'm going to tell you a story. It was during World War II, during World War II, that Nazi Germany thought they could bomb 
England into submission. They dropped thousands of bonds. Here's a, a, a historical picture of London. You can even see a city bus up here against uh, a window standing on its edge. You know, they thought they could bomb England into submission. Thousands of people died. Thousands of bombs were dropped. But the way they, England decided to, to deal with this, or one of the ways to provide some defense for their people, is they began sending people underground to uh, subway stations. You can see them right here sleeping right on the rails. Can you see that right there? Sleeping there. Now, this was all across London. The, the subway lines were completely completely full of people. They built thousands upon thousands of underground bomb uh, shelters. And they would spend, these people would spend literally hours and hours and hours and hours and hours down in these underground bomb shelters or in these subway stations. Now, there was an English clerk by the name of Anthony Pratt who used to spend time down underground in those bomb shelters and subway stations. And he was bored, as you can well imagine. You just, what do you do down there? You just sit down there while the sirens are going off up uh, above your heads and the bombs are being dropped. And, and you know, I, I'm, it was frightening. titled it Murder, is the name of the game that they would play. And it became so incredibly popular that in uh, 1949, uh, Anthony Pratt sold it to a British concern who published this game, and they called it Cluedo. Cluedo. that maybe you have played you know right here in the United States and uh, if it reminds you of something it should because the game that we know that has now been sold to uh, to Hasbro has uh, uh, called excuse me Parker Brothers is called Clue Clue now the regular game has nine different rooms, six different suspects, and uh, six different murder weapons. The object of the game, of course, is to find out what? Who done it, right? That's the object of the game. Who done it? That is, who did it, where did they did it, and what weapon did they use? And when one player figures out or thinks they have it figured out, they might say, I believe when it comes to their turn, I believe it was done by Professor Plum in the ballroom with the wrench. Or they may say, I believe it was done by Mrs. White in the conservatory with the lead pipe. Well, Again, it's a whodunit game. And every whodunit game needs a victim. You gotta have a victim. Even Clue has a victim. You may not know this, but every time you play the game, that person who, whether Professor Plum or Mrs. White or Scarlet or whoever did those things, did it to somebody. Who did they do it? They did it to Mr. Body. 
That is the real person who it, uh, is the victim of every clue game. His name is Mr. Body. Get it? Body, B-O-D-Y, the body, is the one who uh, is the victim. Now, I tell you that to say this. You see, in the, in the so-called game of life, uh, God tells us that there is a whodunit mystery that we're all in. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery that's addressed uh, by God. A mystery that's addressed by God. It's not a make-believe game. It's not a fictional game. It is a very serious game, in fact. Uh, and in just like it is in the game of Clue, uh, there is a victim. Now, who is this victim? Well, what did Paul say? Paul tells us who the victim is. He told the Ephesians, he says, as for you, you were, what, dead, in your transgressions and sins. That's what he told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.1. He also told the Colossians something very similar. He said, you too were dead in your sin. You were dead in your sin. So they were dead. They were the victim. They were the corpse found at the scene of the crime. They had been, they had died, but who was it that killed them? Or what was it that killed them? It was not the revolver or the rope or the candlestick or the wrench or the knife or the lead pipe. It wasn't any of that. Their murder, the murder weapon that killed them was their sins. That's what the scripture tells us. The murder weapon that killed the Colossians, the murder weapon that killed the Ephesians, and the murder weapon that does a number on us too, who kills us spiritually. What kills us spiritually are our sins, are our sins. He says the Ephesians and the Colossians, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. So now the mystery is this. Okay, we know the victim. We know that what's who, the mystery though is this. Who done it? Who who done it? Who did the sin that killed him? Who was responsible? I mean, can you guess? The answer is very straightforward. It's right here in the scripture. Answers to the point. It is that they did it. They were responsible for their own death. They were responsible because their own sins did the killing. And in the same way, our sins are what separate us from God spiritually. Therefore, uh, just like the Ephesians and Colossians, we too were at least once dead in our sin. You and I did it. We're, the, we're not only the, the victims, but we're the one who committed the crime as well. We are the guilty party. Our sins caused us to be dead before God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, look, he says in Matthew 5, he says this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
He says, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says, then if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? He says, cut it off. It's better that one part of your body should, uh, you should lose one part of your body than for your entire body to be thrown into hell. In other words, what is he saying? He said, look, it's your eye, it's your hand, and therefore, you need to deal with it. Your eye, your hand, your sin, now you need to deal with it. Why? Because he says this, our failure, now listen, the failure to deal with that is deadly. It is deadly to play around with our sinfulness. It is failure to, to deal with your sins is deadly. It makes us dead before God. Now, I've got a personal confession to make, and I want you to uh, listen to me carefully. And this is, this is serious. And a matter of fact, camera, if you want to get in a close-up, you go ahead and do that. Because here's a serious deal. True confession on my part. There are times, now I'm embarrassed to say it, but there are times when your pastor likes to sin. Yeah. I said it, now it's all over the world. And I can never get it back. There are times when your pastor likes to sin. Now, before you get all self-righteous on me, let me say this. Uh, I've read the scripture, and that's the first thing. Number two, I know you. And number three, I know that you are in the same boat as me. There are times in your life that you like to sin as well. We do. That's a problem that we got to get over. You know, it has been that way since the beginning of time. I mean, this is no, this is nothing new. This isn't a, a 2020 or 2021 kind of thing. This is this has been ever since ever since uh, Satan slithered up to Eve back there in the Garden of Eden. It's been going on ever since then. Matter of fact, in Genesis 3, 6, what does it tell us? It says, look, when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and look at this ne these next four words. All right, we're going to stop right here and we're going to stare at those next four words. So the, the fruit was good for food. She saw the fruit was good for food and what? Pleasing to the eye. It was good for food, but there's something more than that. It was pleasing to the eye. What did she do? She took some and she ate it. Okay, so, you know, I know that every, every sin is truly a rebellion against God. We say, hey, we know best. We know what we're going to do. And God just step aside because I'm going to handle it. Sin is just like that. It is rebellion against God. But hey, listen to this. This is a part of my true confession, I think. I... I don't think I ever, at least I can't remember, ever, ever sinning because I was angry and upset and shaking my fist at God. I don't, I don't 
ever think about sinning as, as if I were in active rebellion against God. I don't say, God, I am furious at you. I am angry at you. And therefore, I'm going to whatever that sin of the day might be. I just don't do that. I think, you know, why in the world would I ever get mad at God? He's the one who loves me. He created me. He breathed life into me. He gave me the privilege of living. He gave me the opportunity to be here with you guys. He, uh, uh, he has forgiven me. He has uh, uh, promised me eternal life. You know, God has done all of these things for me. Why would I get mad at him because one or two things in life or whatever they may be just don't happen to go my way. I know, so I don't sin because I'm actively in rebellion against God, at least consciously shaking my fist at God, angry at God. That's not the reason I sin. I sin because just like Eve, and, and probably the way most of you do too, is because we see something or believe something is, what are those four words that Eve said there? They were pleasing to the eye. That's the reason it happens. The problem is, you know, uh, sin can sometimes be very pleasurable, very enjoyable. The deal that we end up with, though, is it quickly comes crashing to the ground and you and I are left to pick up the pieces. That's the way it is. We're left to pick the mess up. We're left to, to deal with the garbage that's left over and the, the, the hurt and pain this causes maybe likely causes others who we love and are close to us. We are left to deal with all of the, excuse me for saying, but all of the crap that happens after we do it. That's what the story is. And that's why God says, or Jesus said, here's this quote, again, Sermon on the Mount stuff. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for one part of your body or to lose one part of your body than for your entire body to go into hell. You know, and so the question then becomes, look, does Jesus really want me to self-mutilate? Is that what he really wants? You know, does he really want me to dissect my body? Because if that is the case, not, I would not only have, I would have no eyes. I would have no eyes, I'd have no hands, I'd have no feet, and there'd be very little of anything else left if that were the intent. But still we're left with these words, hey, look, gouge it out, cut it off, throw it away. What in the world was Jesus all about then? Now, not to make some, to try to, to, to ease this too much, but I will have to tell you this, and that is back in that day, in that time, in Jesus' time, this was a really common technique, teaching technique that rabbis used with their people to, to say an off-the-wall, outlandish statement for one reason, in order for the hearer to think seriously 
to not to forget this stuff and to think seriously about what the rabbi is teaching. And Jesus employed this too, to say something like, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut that thing off. It's better for you to lose just one part of your body than for your entire soul to be lost. To make that kind of outlandish statement makes us think about one thing. And that is how powerful and deadly sin is because it has one want. Now listen to me. It has one goal. Sin has one goal in your life. Satan has one goal in your life to get you to sin. And here's what it is. Because sin wants to, here it is, consume you. That's the point Jesus is making. This is so serious that it wants to consume you, to consume you. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter four, where we, we come across two kids, they are the two brothers, two children of Adam and Eve. One's name is Cain, the other is Abel. The time came for Cain and Abel to give an offering to God. So they both go with separate offerings to God. Well, it turns out that God liked Abel's offering better than he liked Cain's offering. Now, you'd think, well, maybe he'd be a little disappointed, but it was far more than that. He was not just simply disappointed. He was furious. I mean, he was downright furious, boiling over, hot head, angry, angry. And the Lord said to Cain, he said this in Genesis 4, he says, look, why are you so angry? Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. And look at these next, this next little phrase right here. Not only is sin crouching at your door, but listen, it desires to what? Have you? You know, I have been on probably eight different safaris in Kenya. Most spectacular, incredible uh, experiences of my life are to go into the Maasai Mara in Kenya and see the the, 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 the lions that are uh, in the tall grass and, and uh, after they've made a kill or are stalking, you can see that kind of stuff up close and personal. You're right there in the field with them. And this is the image that comes to my mind where God is saying, look, Sin is crouching at your door, you know, kind of like the lion in the, in the tall grass and scanning the uh, horizon to, 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 and getting a bead on you. And it desires to have you, is what God is saying. Just like the lion desires the wildebeest or whatever it is that the lion has its bead on. And God says, look, you must master it. 
In other words, God saying to Cain, look, Cain, you've got an anger management problem here. You've got a serious anger management problem. You are angry. It is out of control. And you have got a real problem. You need to deal with it. You need to master it. Because if you don't, the power of the beast is is crouching at your door. And it desires to eat you up. So what looks pleasing to the eye and pleasurable has one sole aim. To ruin you. How many people do you know because of sin? And I'm sure that if you think about it, you can come up with a number of names who have lost their marriage who have lost their relationships, who may have lost their jobs and therefore their income, who have lost their health, who have lost their integrity, who've lost their dignity. Because what ends up happening when all of that stuff comes rolling down, you end up losing your soul. Your soul, you end up with the loss of your soul. Don't take this stuff lightly. That's what Jesus is saying. If your if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut that thing off. He's saying, look, cut it out of your life. That's how serious this stuff is. So What do you got to do? You need to, you must take sin seriously. That's the deal. This is what he's saying. You got to take it seriously. In fact, James says a lot about this stuff. He says here in uh, chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, he says, look, temptation uh, comes from your own desires, which, these are the words right here. Check this out. These are, our own desires, this temptation, our own desires, which entice us. Oh, what did Eve say? Think about that. She said that she saw that the fruit was good for food and what? Pleasing to the eye. Look at this scripture. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and then drag us away. So don't be misled. In other words, don't be fooled. Don't think this ain't serious. This is big deal here, folks. They will, it entices us, drags us away. So don't be misled. You know what? If you, again, if you've ever been to Kenya and you've seen a kill, they, once they hit it, they end up dragging that whatever they got back to wherever they Uh, are going to eat it. They drag it away. It's the same with sin. So you got to deal with it ruthlessly. You can't take it lightly. If you start to coddle it, you're going to find that it's going to drag you away. You'll lose the battle. Jesus is saying, look, draw the line at the beginning. Don't go down the road. And anything short of this, we're going to fail miserably. Number three, and then we're done. 
is if you're going to deal with this stuff, if you're going to take this thing seriously and be ruthless with the way we deal with sin in our life, you got to give it to God. Because I'll tell you one thing, folks. You just don't have the willpower to deal with it on your own. It's just the way it is. We don't have it. The single most important principle in getting our lives under control is to give it to God and give it to his control. That's the way we deal with the power of sin. We get him in our life so he can begin to change our character. Being born again gives us a whole new way to resist temptation. I'm going to close with this story to tell you this. There was a gentleman named True Story. Uh, Peter Philpot. Peter Philpot. He worked in this uh, um, uh, con construction uh, area in this shop that was uh, uh, basically the antithesis of a Christian atmosphere. These guys who worked in the shop, and they were all men who worked in the shop, they were rough, they were crude, they were rude, they were, they were uh, rough and tough guys who were in this particular shop. And the roughest and toughest of them all was a man named Big Tom. At least that's what they called him, Big Tom. He was the rudest and the crudest and the tallest and the toughest and the strongest. And everybody was afraid of Big Tom. Everybody. Nobody backtalked Big Tom. They didn't do it if they valued their life. Well, one day, Big Tom comes to work. And he announces to all of these guys in the shop, this shocking statement saying that he had gone to a, an evangelistic service the night before and had actually given his life to Jesus. Well, the guys didn't know what to say. In fact, they said nothing, nothing. They, they didn't laugh at him. They didn't dare laugh at him. They didn't question him. They didn't dare question him. They just, he just talked and the guys went right back to work. But during breaks, they were now taking bets on exactly how long Big Tom was going to be a Christian. Because they didn't believe that he was going to actually make it home all that day without going back to his, uh, the, the way that he was. They made a bet that he couldn't pass the tavern on the way home from work. But he did. They made a bet that he wouldn't get through the weekend without being uh, a fallen down drunk somewhere. But he took his Friday paycheck and went straight home to his family. They were all shocked. They were amazed. Everybody was losing these bets that they were making on Big Tom until the next week came along and he was busy doing some work and with a hammer, he missed what he was trying to hit and he smashed his thumb. And Big Tom turned that air blue with a streak of words they hadn't heard in a week. They were amazed. And nobody said anything. It was dead quiet. 
And according to Peter Philpot, Big Tom stood there, didn't say anything, didn't even look at the guys. He stood there for a moment in quiet. And then he turned to the guys and said, I'm sorry. I've already asked God to forgive me for what I've done. And now I'm going to ask you to forgive me too. Peter said, according to the story, Peter said, that moment when, when, when Big Tom asked for forgiveness for what he had done was such an impactful moment in his life, in Peter's life, that this guy, he'd never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like it, the kind of change that had taken place in his life. And he said, he said, Peter said, I've got to get to know this Jesus. Whoever could change Big Tom's life is someone I need to get to know. And that was the moment in the next, well, in the next couple of days. Peter Philpot became a follower of Jesus because of the witness of Big Tom. Now, I tell you all of that to ask you this. What is the most vulnerable area in your life right now? That is, where do you struggle the most? You know this stuff. What's your weak spot? God knows it. The devil knows it, surely. The question is, have you figured it out? Have you figured that out? Is it your temper? Is it your appetite? Is it your spending? What is it? Is it... Is it your thoughts? Is it your words? Is it your drinking? Is it drugs? What, 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 is your, what, what are you struggling with right now? What is, what, is, what, what is it that is crouching at your door and about to drag you off and maybe even take your soul? What is that? Because once you figure it out... Jesus has something to say to you. He says, look, cut it out of your life. In other words, gouge it out, cut it off. And we say it, cut it out. That's what he's saying to you and to me. He says, look, this stuff is so serious. What I'm telling you is cut it out. For I will give you all the strength, all the supernatural strength and courage you need if you're willing to do it. In fact, I'm going to leave you with this. Paul said it to the Corinthians. When they were dealing with sin and all of that, Paul said, look, God is faithful. I love the way that starts. Man, that's a good way to get it started. God is faithful. And he will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. So when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. This 
is God's promise for you right here, right now. You will not be tempted more than you can stand because it's crouching at your door. It's pleasing to the eye. You got to cut it out. That's God's word for us. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the ways that you are at work in our lives and for the privilege we have of being in mission and ministry. We are so grateful, Lord, for the chance we have to serve you. But we know, Lord, that there's one thing that can stand in your way, and that is the sin that's in our lives. And so we pray, God, what, whatever it is that we, wherever we're vulnerable, what's standing in our way, what, what is crouching at our door, ready to entice us and drag us off, we pray right now, God, that, that you would come against it in the holy and precious name of Jesus that you would give us the supernatural strength to come against this sin in the name of Jesus Christ. For you are the one who is most powerful. You are the one who went to the cross to set us free. And you are the one who stands willing and ready to forgive us. Thank you so much, Lord. You are so good and you are so good all the time that we love you, that we praise you, that we honor, worship, and adore you. Come, Lord Jesus, right now. Fill us up so that we may be your witness in the world. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.